Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. How many of you have ever uh, picked up a globe and, and spun the globe and you see all the different nations on it and you began wondering, you know, I wonder where these came from? Any of you ever wonder where the nations on the globe came from? Or, yeah, thank you. Some of you, have you ever taken a map and spread a map out and then you see all the lines that divides up the groups and the territories and the regions and the states and the map and you say, now where did they come from? Because, you know, in, in real life, you could get to where those lines are and there's nothing there. <laughs> so where did all these nations on the planet come from? Not just nations, but languages. Did you ever consider that? You know that Wycliffe Bible Translator says there are 6,809 known languages on the planet. Where do they come from? You know, why aren't we just one simple nation, one universal language, and one universal culture? Wouldn't that make things a lot easier? Everybody we think could just get along. And all the high school students would love it because they wouldn't have to take foreign language to graduate. Right? Right? Yeah. That would be fun. So why do we have all these different languages and cultures and nations? Today we're going to find out. We're going to see where they came from as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. Now if you're a visitor this morning, I would like to welcome you. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds Church, and Crosswinds is a multi-campus church. We have this campus in Spirit Lake, plus we have another one in, in Spencer. And what we do across our campuses is, is we teach together, typically through books of the Bible. And we are teaching together through the book of Genesis. And today we've come to Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. Now, we you need to know that Genesis chapter 10 is like a really tough chapter to teach on. I think it was Chuck Swindoll that said this quote. He said that the most boring sermon I ever heard in my life was on Genesis chapter 10. And it was also the most boring sermon I delivered. And so I, I ran across that quote in some of my study this week, and I was like, oh, that's great. So I have to preach on Genesis chapter 10. All right, well, hopefully this is not going to be the most boring sermon you've ever heard and the most boring sermon you've ever, I've ever delivered. Hopefully I'll do a little better than that. Um, but Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogical list, which we all like reading through genealogical lists, don't we? It's, oh, it's my favorite. It's like reading the phone book. Yeah, genealogies are great. And who begat who, who begat who, who begat who. But this is actually our second genealogical list. Remember we hit the first genealogical list in Genesis chapter 5? Genesis chapter 5 traced all the way from Adam to Noah. It was a 1,600-year genealogy. And then we had this uh, excursus, this zoom in on Noah from Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, which we spent the last few weeks looking at Noah. Now we're back to another genealogical list. This goes from Noah all the way to Abraham. And then the book, rest of the book of Genesis focuses in, on, focuses in on Abraham, God's chosen people. So if you think about it, if you put Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 10 together, you get the 
entire genealogical list all the way from Adam to Abraham. A lot of details, a lot of stuff that's hard to study, but a lot of fun stuff that we're going to look at today. Now, let me just set the stage for you. Remember that the entire planet was wiped clean. All the animals, all the human beings died. All that was left was Noah and his three sons with their wives on the ark, plus the, the animals that were on the ark. That's like the seed starter kit, you know, repopulate the planet out of that. And what the Bible tells us is from Noah's three sons comes all the people, races, and nations of the entire earth. Their names, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, not Larry, Moe, and Curly. But as we're going to see, they have some interesting, unique personalities, personalities that are um, really important to understand because they get replicated. Let's begin. The genealogy from Noah to Abraham. Let's start with the first son. His, uh, his name is Japheth. And by the way, I'm going to try and read this genealogical list. Now, I know a number of you are just going to start breaking out in laughter because I can't pronounce all these names. Just, just go easy on me now. You know, no hate, no hate mail on Monday. Do what I can. You couldn't do any better. Trust me. Here we go. The sons of Japheth are Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer are Ashkenaz, Rif. Fath, and Togma. The sons of Jabin are Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodim, Dodamim. Sorry. From these come the coastland peoples, and some other translations add the maritime peoples. And they spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. What I want you to notice is it says, here, from the, the, from the Japheth came all of the shipbuilders, came all of the fishermen. These are the guys who are like the stars on Big Tuna and, and Big Shrimping on National Geographic and all those other, other programs. These are the guys who build boats and, and go out on the sea. These are the creators of fish sticks and seafood boil. That's what these guys are all about. And what you see here is the beginning of family business. Isn't that true? Like, if you're in this clan, your family business is going to be fishing and boating and, and shipbuilding. That's what it is. Now, my kids sort of really enjoy one program called Alligator Hunter. Do you guys ever... Any, any Alligator Hunter fans out here? Yeah, Crocodile Hunter. Okay, I'm sorry. Straighten me out. Cro any more Crocodile Hunter out there? Thank you. I, the, okay, the rest of you can go home and watch Crocodile Hunter. My, my kids love this because these guys go out and they, you know, they wrestle with the crocodiles and shoot them and stuff, and they like all that blood and gore and stuff like that. And the thing that's sort of interesting is like one of the main stars on the show is the Landry family, and the Landry family is like... My father hunted alligators, his father hunted alligators, my grandpappy hunted alligators, and I'm teaching my son to hunt alligators. And that, that's the way it is. It's, it's the family business. Now, in Iowa, we don't hunt alligators in the family business, but it's true. Um, there is a family business in Iowa. What is it called? Farming. 
Because if you don't marry into it, or if you aren't born into it, you ain't getting into it. Because land is a premium, right? It's, it's hard to get a hold of. But this is what I want to point out. You need to see that we're all part of a legacy. We're all part of a family lineage. And that's important. In fact, what we see here, it's important because that's the only way to get into a family business. Now, take that thought and hold that thought, the importance of our legacy and the family we're a part of. We're going to continue to come back to it as we continue to go through this genealogical list. The next guy we run across is a guy named Ham. Now, remember, uh, there were two generally good sons of Noah and one bad son of Noah. We're just talking in generalities. The good sons were Japheth and Shem. The bad guy who was exposing his father's nakedness and mocking his father's nakedness and the guy who got cursed last week was Ham and his son. So let's go ahead and read about the cursed guy. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush are Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah are Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalne, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kela and Resen between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. And Egypt fathered Ludim and Anamim and Lahabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came. All right, all you young parents, I know some of you are looking for good names for your children. I think we just read a bunch of them. All the pregnant women are taking good notes on today's Scripture reading, for they're looking for kids' names. Uh, but I have to tell you, there is one name in there that for sure you really don't want to use, Nimrod. When you name your child Nimrod, that is evidence you did not want to be pregnant. I mean, nobody names their kid Nimrod. I mean, and think of the kind of abuse that kid is going to go through in high school and junior high. Hey, Nimrod, come on over here. But before we get too far about this, let me tell you a little bit more about Nimrod. Nimrod, it says, is a, a mighty man upon the earth. This guy is sort of, he's a tough guy. This guy can hunt. This guy can shoot. This guy plays around in the woods. Picture him with a big truck with uh, knobby tires and, and, a, and a gun rack right over the back window. This guy can kill uh, an animal with his bare hands. He's the tough guy in the group. I mean, you need to picture him. He probably has the physique of Arnold Schwarzenegger, a beard like Willie Robertson, and he runs around acting like Rambo. This is what Nimrod is like. But what the interesting thing is Nimrod actually means something in Hebrew besides please mock me as a child. Now, actually, Nimrod in Hebrew means I will rebel. 
this guy is one rebellious child, and he grows up, and he is one rebellious man. He is the one who leads rebellion against God. But he's also not a dummy. He's a natural leader. In fact, notice here, this guy who's all into rebellion against God, he, he builds some cities. And I'm not going to get into all the details of the cities that he builds, but I do want to point out two. The first city he builds is the city of Babel. Here's what you need to know. Babel is short for Babylon. Now, what is the reputation of the city of Babylon? Throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is Babylon known as a wonderful, good, godly city? Absolutely not. Babylon, from Genesis to Revelation, is shown as the actual, like, really wicked, rebellious city. It is the poster child in Revelation of what it looks like for, to have a wicked, rebellious society against God. In fact, you remember uh, when we studied the book of Daniel, that King Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar was one, like one of the first world superpowers, and they're the ones that came and, and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Because the Israelites had a northern and a southern kingdom, it was a divided kingdom. The Babylonians, which are ultimately the sons of Ham, the cursed son, are the ones that come and conquer the Jews. Now, here's something you need to know. It's really interesting. We're going to see in a moment that the Jews are actually sons of Shem, by the descendant of Shem. Shem was the blessed son, remember? Ham is the cursed guy. The cursed guy's uh, progeny go and attack and try to destroy the blessed guy's progeny. Now, I say this only to tell you that the roots of Middle East conflict are really deep. Like they go all the way back to the sons of Noah. And it doesn't just end there. We'll flip on to the next page. That was the sons of Cush. How about the sons of Canaan, which were some more son, which is another son of Ham? Let's read his uh, little biography here. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hives, and the Archites, and the Finites, and the Arvadites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites, and afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Ada and Zeboim, as far as Lasha, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. We ran across Canaan last week. Remember when Ham sinned against his father Noah? Noah was uh, naked, drunk, asleep on the couch. Ham comes in, does the peeping Tom thing, and he um, sort of uncovers and talks about and mocks his father's nakedness. Ham didn't get cursed, but his son, Canaan, was cursed. This guy was cursed. Now, the question is, what happened to him and his kids? We learned this just a little bit last week. 
Canaan fathered the Canaanites. Where do the Canaanites go and where do they move into? The promised land. Where the Jews are today, they go into the promised land. In fact, all these guys, all the ites, you know, the, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all they are is different varieties and different flavors of Canaanites. That's all they are. Now, what were these Canaanite people like? Were they just like you and me, or were they pretty common and ordinary folks? You read the Scriptures, and they're not what you would call your normal, good, upstanding citizens. In fact, they're pretty darn wicked. They're pretty darn sexually depraved. I encouraged those of you in life groups last week to look up Leviticus chapter 18, which is the Levitical moral code. It begins by saying this, do not be like the Canaanites in the land around you. And then it goes on to all this long list. Don't expose your father's nakedness. Don't expose your mother's nakedness. Don't have relationships with a close relative. Don't do all this homosexual. Well, what are the Canaanites like? Wicked, sexual perverts. Now, here's what you need to know. It gets interesting. You read a little further into Genesis... And it says, and they came back. This is, by the way, this is God talking to Abraham about his descendants. He says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And if you keep reading, it says it's not just the iniquity of the Amorites, but it's also the iniquity of the Girgashites and the Jebusites and all the rest of the ites. So God says to Abraham, you know what? All these ites, all these Canaanites, their iniquity is really, like really getting to the top of me here. You know, it's just about on max. You know, it's not complete. About 400 years at this rate, and it's going to like put me over the top. So he's given them 400 years for an opportunity to repent. Meantime, Abraham and his sons, which by the way are the blessed sons, you know, they're sort of off the picture. But in 400 years, your kids, your grandkids are going to come back, and their job is going to be to wipe out the Canaanites. Now, some of us have read the part where Israel takes over the promised land, and we're like, oh, man, God is such a toughie. God commands them to kill everybody, just totally to wipe the remembrance off the face of the earth. Why isn't God nice? Why doesn't He just, like, assimilate them into the Jews, and everyone could be happy and get along and live a nice life? The Jews are God's hand of judgment upon the Canaanites that were in the promised land. They were not to make friends with them. They were not to try and get along with them. They were to completely annihilate them as judgment for their sin. Does that make the Old Testament conquering sound a little better and explain it to you a little bit more as to why the Jews are to be so ruthless and destroy the Canaanite people? Because they're a bunch of wicked sexual perverts. And God says, you are not going to have that stuff growing in your people. Not going to be the practices of who my God's people are. Well, I've covered Japheth. I have covered Ham. And Ham was the bad guy. Let me just briefly cover Shem. Shem was the uh, sort of the, the blessed son. And I'm just going to point out the very first line. And I really can't pronounce most of the rest of the name. So I'm going to jump to the end. I'm just going to be honest. I totally botched it first service. Just be thankful you're in second. 
um, says this, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. Now, you're like, Eber? Uh, who's Eber? All the pregnant women are going, I like that name. Eber is short for Hebrew. Shem is ultimately the father of the Hebrew people. Because the, the list goes with this. It goes from Shem to Amram to Shelah to Eber. All right. Congratulations. Everybody's going to get a star in their Bible when they go out. You have successfully listened to an uh, exposition on Genesis chapter 10 and the genealogical lists. And I think that, you know, deserves some kind of a star. But you guys are saying to yourself, thank you, uh, Pastor, for teaching us the genealogies. I love when you preach from the Hebrew phone book. What possible spiritual good could there be to come out of this? And I am so thankful you asked. Because there is huge spiritual good in the genealogies. Let me show you. Here's what you need to re-understand. I am leaving a legacy. Write that down. I am leaving a legacy. Look at the legacy of Noah's sons. Shem and Japheth generally left a good legacy. Ham left a bad legacy. Look at the, you know, the cities that come from Ham's line. I skipped over this, but it wasn't just um, Babylon that came from Ham's line, but it was also Nineveh that came from Ham's line. The Assyrians. The Assyrians were the one that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians were the ones that conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. See, we're Americans, and we think that there's lineage is not a big deal. We're like, we think it doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what your parents did. We're all independent people. We think it doesn't matter what we do because our kids, you know, our kids will be their own person. They'll go do their own thing. We all like to think of ourselves as little isolated islands. And the Bible screams at us through these genealogical lists. We are not little isolated islands. We're all part of a lineage. And what we do with our life, either for good or for ill, will reverberate down the corridors of time. And what our ancestors have done with their life reverberated down the corridors of time into our own life. It's true. You cannot escape this. If you have good and godly parents, generally, what do the kids turn out to be like? Good and godly kids. If you have wicked, sinful, depraved parents, generally, where do the kids go? Wicked, sinful, depraved kids. Parents, we are photocopying ourselves into our kids' life, whether we like it or not. The legacy we leave behind is huge. Let me just give you an example. Uh, when I grew up, my father uh, was a really hard worker, very intense, usually one of the last guys to leave the office, really a detailed, precision great worker. And I always looked at him like, wow, that guy's crazy. He works all the time. But I reflected on my life, and I work like my father did <laughs> because he photocopied himself into my life. It's just what happens. When I grew up, 
when the doors of the church were open, my family was there. My family was usually the last family or one of the last families to leave the church on a Sunday morning because they saw great value in community and being together and trying to talk with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I thought about it this week. Uh, who was usually one of the last ones to leave church on Sunday morning? Not just because I'm the pastor. It was always that way because it came from my parents. When you're going through a tough time, I remember my mom when she was going through just some really tough times in her life. I'd hear her on Sunday or on weekday mornings really early in the morning in the guest bedroom, which was right next to my bedroom. She'd be on her knees with her face in the bed. She'd be praying. And I couldn't understand what she was saying, but I could hear her murmuring and praying really early in the morning before she got up and made us breakfast. And when tough times came into my life, I got down on my knees and I prayed and I called out to God and you know where that came from? Learned it from my mom. I saw what she did. She photocopied herself into my life. Folks, we're photocopying ourselves into our kids' life, and we, we, we can't help it. And I want to challenge you to think that what we are doing with our lives and the legacy we're leaving behind, it doesn't just go for one generation. It ripples down the corridors of time for multiple generations. As I was preparing this message this morning, I began thinking about uh, a picture I have in my, my photo album on my Mac, and uh, I thought I'd put it up there. It's a picture of a gravestone. This is the, the gravestone of, like, the original David Truxes to come into America. This is the guy who literally got off the boat, came over here. He dies in, like, 1897, age 83, six months, 13 days. Let me do the math real quick. Some of you are probably quicker than me, but... He's born like what, 1914 or something? Yeah. Like, what was the math? 14? 18? Okay, 18, whatever. I'm sorry, I can't read it and do the math and speak at the same time. But you guys got the point. Like, this is like really, really far back. And this is, this is in Lower Providence uh, Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. And his gravestone is like right next to the church. It's like one of the first gravestones in this church graveyard. And you know what's interesting? Look at the subtitle. President of the Board of Trustees of this church for 45 years. I read that and I'm like, dude, I have church leadership in my background. Six generations back. In fact, if you continue to go through the other gravestones, which are later uh, in, the, in the graveyard, more trucks as gravestones, and you find other church leaders with things written on their gravestone. Like one guy was an organist for that, in that church, like forever. And I can't wait to someday get to heaven and like come up to like David Trucks's and totally give the guy a high five and say, buddy, thank you so much for being a leader and probably being like one of the founders on this church here and trying to establish this church and put Jesus Christ into your family line because you know that just echoed down the corridors of time all the way into my parents and all the way into me. And I was a pastor in, you know, Spirit Lake, Iowa. And you know where it all began? It began with a church leader six generations back. Do you see how it just echoes? Here's my challenge for you. So many of us can't think farther than the weekend. We just live for the weekend. Wise people don't just live for the weekend. Wise people think five or six generations in the future. 
knowing that what they do with their lives now will have an effect not just for their children, but for their children's children and for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. So I put it to you this way. I know some of you, you know, pick up a beer on the weekends. And is it wrong to pick up a beer? No. As long as you're old enough. But how often do you pick up a beer? Do you want your children and your grandchildren picking up a beer as often as you do on the weekends? Or would you rather have them picking up a, a ball and a glove and playing with their children? What you want to see in your children and grandchildren, begin modeling now. Because that is what is going to get passed down the line. Men, when it comes to conflict with your wife, how do you want your children and your grandchildren handling their wife? Because, you know, the way they see you treat their mother will be the way they treat their wife. Men, I was talking about you, the way you handle your um, wife. That'll be what your kids, how they learn to handle their wife when they get to be a mature man. And then their kids will see it, and they'll handle their wife the same way. So you model humility, you model gentleness, you model kindness, not just for you, but for your kids, and for their kids, and for their kids. Moms, what kind of home do you want your great-great-grandchildren growing up in? What kind of attitude do you want their mother to have? You know where it comes from? You model gentleness, you model kindness, you model submission, and you model love in your home. Your daughters see it, and they say, when I grow up, I'm going to be just like my mom. And even if they don't consciously choose that, it gets photocopied in them for generations to come. All this simply to say this, folks, when you read the genealogies, realize the incredible power of legacy. The legacy that we leave photocopies itself for generations to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, I have 15 minutes and I have to cover Babylon, so let's see what we can do. We looked at how people spread out all over the earth, but the question is, why did they spread out all over the earth? And Genesis chapter 11 tells us why they spread out, because we're going to see they didn't want to spread out. They didn't want to fulfill the earth and cover the earth. We pick up the text in the Tower of Babel here in the first two verses of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, which by the way is the land of Babylon, and they settled there. So what you have is people are migrating, you know, they're multiplying, they're migrating, they're filling the earth like God told Noah and his sons to do. They get out to this like huge, like big open football field kind of area that's much bigger than a football field. And they're like, why should we go any farther? I mean, this place, we could just build everything here. This is a wonderful place to live. Now remember, we learned earlier that who's in charge? Nimrod, who's a Nimrod, Right? And Nimrod, he's the little Hitler. He's the little ISIS leader. He's the guy who's trying to lead everybody the opposite way that God tells him to go. So God says, spread out. Nimrod says, nope, let's stay here. Let's make camp and let's just build this place up. And it picks up. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen, by the way, is simply tar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, that we, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they're looking at this huge open area, and they're like, man, this is the place we're going to build. But we got a little problem here. Like, what are we going to build with? We don't have any rocks. We can't pile up rocks. There's no trees. We can't make a big fort. And somebody says, you know, there's all kinds of clay and tar out here. And somebody goes, bright idea. You know, I've seen what the sun does to the clay. It hardens it. So maybe we could make clay bricks. And we, let, we can get them nice and hot and get them hard. And then we can use the tar for like mortar between these two. And what this guy is, is he's a guy who had a really big Lego set when he was a kid. Because that's what they're going to do. They're going to build a life-size Lego city all with clay bricks. That's what's going on. See, nothing's new under the sun. This is where Legos come from. And it's true. Now, this looks like it's uh, pretty advanced stuff. You can just picture these guys. They have papyrus blueprints all spread out. They're trying to figure out a water system or sewer system. And for those people who say that, like, civilization didn't come around for a long time and everybody in the ancient world was a bunch of idiots, think again. They're building a city. Noah built the largest wooden boat ever to sail the planet. These guys aren't dummies. They're smart. But the centerpiece of this city is this humongous tower that's going to reach up into the heavens. And some of you who are social studies teachers are going, oh, I know exactly what this is. This is a ziggurat. And you're going to take and import everything you know about ziggurats from your social studies book into this passage. Before we do that, the Bible doesn't tell us everything they wanted to do on this tower. What they tell us, what the Bible does tell us, is these people wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted everybody from everywhere to be able to see this tower from a distance. This is like the center place. Think about it this way. The United States, when they opened the Empire State Building in 1931, it was the lar- one of the largest buildings in the world. I think it was the tallest building in the world. And it was a way that sort of said, guess what? We're great. We're America. And then we opened the World Trade Centers, and we had two of them that even dwarfed uh, the Empire State Building. And the World Trade Centers were a statement of America's greatness. So what did the terrorists want to attack? What makes us look great? It's a way of insulting us to remove our greatness by removing our towers. So what these guys are doing is they're trying to build these huge, this huge tower, which ultimately is really just a statement of their own greatness. You see, there's a problem here. The problem is not with their engineering. The problem is not with their design. The problem is with their heart. It's the reason they're building this. Look what they said. Uh, They want to make a name for themselves. The problem is pride. It's that they fear anonymity. 
They don't want to be just like everybody else spreading out on the planet. They don't want to be just another uh, name, another face, another number. They want everybody on the planet to look at them and say, you know, you are guys are great. You guys are famous. I can see that tower from any place I look. It's like the centerpiece on the planet. That's what they want. Now, folks, this uh, fear of anonymity and addiction to pride, it's something that many people struggle with. Like our athletes, you know, professional athletes, they always want to make a name for themselves, don't they? And our politicians, they always want to make sure their name is in the lights. And the truth is that many of us struggle with the same thing. We fear being anonymous. We fear being ordinary. So what we do is we uh, try to either make ourselves famous by our wealth, by our house, by the things we do. We want to make sure we stand out from the crowd. So other people look at us, they say, oh, yeah, they're really something else. But here's the problem, folks. You have to make a choice. You can't make your name famous and God's name famous at the same time. You have to choose. Do you want people to remember you, or do you want people to remember God? It's one or the other. It cannot be both. That means that when you're in business, there may come a time in business where you have to choose, do you want profit or character? Profit is going to make you healthier. Profit will make you bigger and, and more lucrative, but character... That'll help God's name to be remembered because you did the right thing even when it hurt. You have to choose. Do you want maybe a promotion? And do you want to be the person who's always making yourself look big around the office? Or do you want to do what God says and says, in humility, consider others better than yourself? Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Do you want to be a servant in the office? Or do you want to be the center of attention? Center of attention most likely gets you the promotion. The servant, looking out for others first, people will know your character, they'll know your Savior, but they may actually forget you. Which one do you want? You have one or the other. You cannot have both. Now, by the way, does this mean you'll never be famous? No. We come along to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and God says to Abraham, I will make your name famous. God may choose to lift you up and make you famous, but if you have to make a choice, are you going to lift yourself up or are you going to lift God up? If you lift God up, which is what we're supposed to do, He may lift us up. That may come, but that's not what we're looking for. We want people to remember God's name instead of our own when all is said and done. Second thing to look at is this. The problem these guys had also is they elevated comfort over mission. Comfort over mission. They were commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and spread out all over the earth. But they're like, you know, that's sort of hard. I always have to go to someplace new. I have to meet new people, new places, new things. Let's just stay right here in Babylon and, and get real comfortable with my friends and my neighbors and just build this place up, make this an edifice, a big monument to our greatness. 
what do we want to do? Folks, this isn't just something the Babylonians did, but this is something that we like to do. God has told us that our mission is to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond, to tell others about Jesus Christ. And folks, that, that's oftentimes uncomfortable, always to meet new people, go new places, do new things, talk about Jesus. Bringing a Jesus up in a conversation can sort of make things go awkward for a little bit, can it? It's uncomfortable. But what is more important for you, comfort or our mission? The Babylonians said, I'm just all about being comfortable. And I just want to say that I think to some degree we're all Babylonian, aren't we? Like when was the last time we took somebody that was brand new in the church that we haven't seen before and said, you know what, hey, I don't know you, I don't know much about you, but can I get together with you and you want to go out and grab coffee? I'd just like to meet you. I say, oh, I wouldn't do that. That's uncomfortable. I know. We're not to elevate our comfort over our mission, to reach as many people as we can, to try and make Jesus Christ famous. Uh, let me give you an example. A few years ago, we had the opportunity to continue to build up the Spirit Lake campus, to make it bigger, you know. And we have a nice big auditorium. We could add another room on the back. We could just continue to sprawl this place all over the place. But we decided that we're not going to just become more comfortable. We're going to elevate our, our mission. Our mission is to reach our region with the good news of Jesus Christ. That ultimately led to not trying to make Spirit Lake bigger, but us sacrificing and trying to open another campus in Spencer because we wanted more people to know and love Jesus Christ in our region. And in the future, it'll probably mean the same thing. We'll open it to be another campus, not necessarily build us up and get more comfortable, but sacrifice to reach our region and be about our mission. Let me just go ahead and continue in the text. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Which, by the way, are you guys into humor? The Bible is filled with humor, which I think this is like one of the major humor lines. God came down to see the tower. Oh, yeah, biggest one on the earth. I think I can see it. Impressive. Oh, I, I'm impressed, guys. Yeah. You want to make your name famous. Uh, everybody looking up to you. Yeah, you're the big guy in the block, obviously. Hmm. Yeah, I had this other little, other little one. Like, um, I did something to make my name famous. It was called creation. I did it with speaking the words. I didn't even have to make the bricks. Uh, in fact, look at the universe. All I had to do was say, and the stars. And like all of space and all the planets and all the stars came into creation. Oh, now, by the way, whose name should we be making famous again? Yours or mine? God's name. Not our name. And it continues. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they, ha and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What God says is, you know, when people finally learn to work together, they can do either great good or great evil. Isn't that right? Look at Hitler. He gets everybody working together. Great evil, right? 
Look at ISIS. They get everybody working together, and what is it? Great evil. And God's going like, you know, this is totally going in the wrong direction. These guys are all about making their name famous. The sinfulness of their heart is all for great evil. This is not going to go well on the planet. So he's like, you know, I already flooded the place. I can't wipe everybody out all over again. I promised I wouldn't do it a second time. So their issue is working together. We're going to have some fun. Like they wake up like the next morning and they walk out of their house and like one guy's speaking French and the other guy, his neighbor, is speaking Spanish. The other guy's got some Greek across the street. Another guy's Hebrew. And I'm like, whoa, what happened? They go to work where they have all the papyrus blueprints spread out, and they're like, wait a minute. Like, I get the pictures, but all the language on the side looks like the Chinese instruction manual to the manual in your new camera, you know? It's like, I don't understand any of this. And they're totally confused. They don't know what to do. And they're like angry at God. Like, God, how could you ruin our project? And God's like, trust me, I'm doing it for your own good. And they have to get together in different groups who can speak the same language. And it says from there, they, they spread out. They spread out all over the earth. And that is how the Bible says we ended up with different languages, different nations, and different cultures. It was all done by God's grace to check the spread of sin. Because if we had one language, one nation, one culture, the reality is somebody would be in charge, and because of their sinfulness, of their human heart, this would be one wicked planet to live on. And God keeps it in check <laughs> by all the different languages and nations and cultures. Now, you may ask... You know, is there ever going to be a time again where there's one huge, good language and culture where it all comes together and it actually works? The Bible says there is a coming a time. The Scriptures say that when Jesus went to heaven, He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember that? And He says, the Scriptures tell us that the place that He goes to repair is something called the New Jerusalem. It's a grand, huge city that one day will come out of heaven and that it will sit on the new heavens and the new earth. It will be the grand, huge, centerpiece city on the new world. It will be the dream the Babylonians have that was thwarted. It will finally be fulfilled. And you may wonder, in that city, is there going to be a great tower? A great tower that everybody looks to. Well, there's not a great tower but it does say there's going to be a great throne because high and lifted up on that throne for everybody on the planet to see will be Jesus Christ. And it says the radiance of Jesus Christ will literally be what illuminates the whole planet. And in that city will be people of different tribes and peoples and nations and languages and they're all going to be working not for their own glory, but they're all going to be working for Jesus' glory to make His name famous and to worship Him throughout all eternity. That is, my friends, what we look forward to. And as I close, I commend you. I commend you to Jesus Christ. The answer to the world's problems, my friends, is not a great world ruler like Nimrod or Obama or Hillary or even Carson or Trump. The answer to the world's problems is Jesus. 
The answer to the world's problems is not technological innovations like baking bricks and figuring out how to make tar for mortar or the internet or an iPhone or even building a great city. The, the answer to the world's problems is Jesus. He's the only one that can change the sinfulness of our hearts so that we can work together in spite of our differences in different languages and glory to complement one another for all of eternity. So my friends, this week I ask that you would just enjoy and relish and love Jesus Christ and to spend your lives making His name famous instead of your own. Amen? This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.